comment, and I thought it might be useful. Is that okay? To um, explore with you a little bit more um, stories and the ways that they can be useful and not so useful. Um, So we don't end up being kind of too uh, tight or too loose in our in our use of narratives or stories it can really be helpful um, sometimes to just understand uh, how things work so that we can use them more fluidly you know we use our electronic equipment more fluidly if we kind of get it you know how it how it operates so um, the talk is going to be a little bit of a foray into uh, neurology and biology in the interest of um, just having a little bit more understanding of how this how this thing works um, and kind of what it is that we're dealing with uh, when we're um, inquiring into our experience. I've mentioned in passing, I think last night when uh, we were doing the contemplation, the infinite causes and conditions that bring us to any given moment. It really is kind of boggling when we think about it, just all the the just different things, both um, very intimately, like um, what I had for breakfast and whether or not I slept last night and um, whether I brought the right kind of clothes and, you know, just everything very intimately right here in terms of this little organism and how it's functioning. And then we can kind of get broader and broader and we can think about, you know, oh, all of the um, people here who are supporting us and whether or not they slept last night and... um, uh, you know, and then all of the uh, beings at home who've made it possible for us to be here. And then, you know, how is it that we encountered Buddhist practice anyway? And, you know, and how is it that Buddhist practice is even available to us Westerners? And what were the, you know, political circumstances in, you know, um, the Netherlands that caused my ancestors to move to the United States? And I would be, you know, and what would it, who was it who shot who and that was the cause of the war that and why did they do that and you know it can just get on and on and on and we can just really get a sense of these causes and conditions for this moment just this moment's experience that are just so huge and so it's sort of delusional isn't it to imagine that we can just sort of like well just stop it or change or um, because we have this kind of avalanche of of causes and conditions that are, are informing anything. And better yet, it's delusional to imagine that we can just say to somebody else, you know, I wish you'd stop whatever it is doing that. And then they just sort of say, oh, silly me. Okay, I'll just stop. You know, that, that, that it's, you know, the sense that, that we can just sort of explain to somebody what they're doing incorrectly, and then they'll just sort of fix it. Um, which sometimes is easy to do. You say you're stepping on my foot, and oh, please move. And okay, fine. But other times, it's really not so simple. You know that they too are conditioned by this their own avalanches 
of causes and conditions, and then they kind of come together, and then we have a mutual avalanche, and there we are. So it's really, when you think about it, it's really kind of amazing that anything ever gets done, or that we have relationships that work at all, given all of the, you know, all of the potentials uh, that there are. Um, So we wanted to talk a little bit about one of those sets, if you will, of causes and conditions. Um, You know, we can organize them in all kinds of ways, but one of the sets of causes and conditions is um, maybe just our DNA, you know, just biologically, the DNA that we're born with. Um, 30% of us have DNA that that is likely to give us a temperament where we're really very internal. And we like to be left alone. And we're, we get our energy from kind of going off away from the herd and uh, kind of collecting ourselves and then coming back. And 60% of us, roughly, um, are just the opposite, where we really you know, get a lot of um, juice and energy from being right in the middle of the herd and right in the middle of the traffic. And that's just part of the DNA. It's just you know, part of how it works. And there's you know, just all the different rhythms and... Uh, systems that that are, you know, just genetically programmed. Um, in Buddhist psychology, um, the understanding is that not only are there these physiological uh, components to our causes and conditions, but there's um, past life components or karmic components where we kind of come into this world, if you will, kind of trailing certain qualities of energies. But we don't even have to believe that we can just sort of say, well, we, you know, DNA is plenty, uh, you know, information to say, wow, there's a lot going on here and there's a lot that's different, you know, uh, from one person to another. And then you complicate that by the DNA and the, and, and the history and the experiences of the people who've been around us, who've raised us. You know, all of the experiences of my mother and my father and her mother and her father and her sisters and her brothers. And not only that, but the community in which people are born, uh, you know, how they lived, how they grew. It's one thing to have this DNA and to be born in Chicago. It's perhaps quite another to be have this DNA and be born in a tribal village in Pakistan. You know, just all of the, all of the conditioning that, that um, contributes to how I am today. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the, the specific experiences of our lives, some of them more profound than others, so that, you know, that thing that happened when I was five with, you know, with, you know, my uncle, then, oh, that really had a big influence on how, you know, I began to, to see the world. That, you know, just all those all those different experiences that really affect us, and so all of this um, really begins to program, if you will, the computer that is this human body system. You know, we mentioned the other night about the hundred billion neurons uh, times ten thousand synapses a piece, and you do the math, and so that this system is just continually being programmed from birth. Some would say before birth to function in a particular way. Um, and it's impossible to know all of the causes and conditions, of course, that, that contribute to that. Um, but it's programmed in the sense that the, all of these neurons 
begin to kind of uh, fire in more more or less predictable ways. Um, so that, you know, you've heard, you know, neurons that wire together fire together, which is to say a set of neurons that fire together once, the probability increases that they'll fire together in that way again. And the, that probability goes up and up and up depending on the age that I was when those neurons first fired and the... Um, sensitivity of my system, the intensity of the stimulus, just all sorts of things, so that that programming and that tendency to fire in a particular way gradually gets organized into what we call a self. In the chanting that we do, it, you know, says, you know, it invites us to release identification with this self. Easy for the chance to say. Um, because, you know, we we come over time, it's just part of how we are as humans, that we, cult- that we develop this sort of belief that this self, which is to say the way these neurons in this particular brain are firing, that this is somehow real. as opposed to a process. It's something that happens. It's not like a thing that is this. It's a process that happens. And so in our Buddhist practice, we're invited to release identification with that, to see the process. Important point. To see the process. It's not like we release the process. We would be in big trouble if we released the process and we had to navigate moment by moment by moment by moment a hundred billion times ten thousand synapses. You know, we couldn't we couldn't do it. So we're not invited to release the process. We're rele- we're invited to release how strongly we believe in the process and how real we take it to be. And this actually is. Um, different from our conditioning, our human conditioning, which is organized to um, help us organize all this information. I said the other night, you know, that so we have this experience as we grow and as we tell our stories that we name our experience and we begin through that naming and through that remembering of our experience to um, understand who we are and how we fit into the world. I was out walking one day, and I heard a little boy, about five years old, he's, he was with his grandfather, and he, um, as I passed them, I heard him say to his grandfather, Grandpa, do we like this flower? You know, and it's kind of how it goes, you know. So then I grow up, and I learn, oh, this is what I like. These are the foods that are acceptable to eat. These are the behaviors that are appropriate. And so much so that I don't even know that it's learned behavior. I take it to be true. Especially if that programming happened before I had language, then especially do I take it to be true. And I don't even remember that I'm remembering. It's just how it is. It's true. 
in my theory of things, in my view of things. It's not in fact true. I just come to have a sense, and that's a, a sense of that truth, and that's the source actually of my ongoing stability in this physical world. And again, it's important to have that ongoing stability. So we don't want to throw out the baby with the bath as we begin to investigate these things. But it's also uh, important to understand that this human conditioning is more limited than we take it to be. Because if we don't understand that, then we keep trying to get it to work in a way that it can't possibly that we try to get this conditioned being um, to have happiness in ways that just are not just are not doable, they're not possible. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about one of the aspects of conditioning that so strongly affects our relationships and our sense of being okay in love and in 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 our relational field. And that's the conditioning that comes up around the um, our, uh, our early relationships and our relationships with our, with our parents in particular, or our caregivers. It doesn't have to be a parent, uh, but our primary caregivers. Uh, because it's so uh, much in the background, we take it so much to be true, and it can so color our experience of ourselves and of our relationships and our sense of our worthiness. Uh, As human beings, part of our DNA is that we are wired to attach to other social beings. It's not optional. It comes with the package. That uh, it's sort of like, you know, coming with the package, you know, for most of us we have noses and we have um, ears and we have... Uh, fingers, we can locomote, we can walk. It's just part of the deal. It sort of, you know, comes prepackaged. This, uh, con- this uh, uh, pre-condition uh, to and this tendency to connect socially to other human beings. And the reason for that biologically is, of course, that we're born like little kangaroos. You know, we're born, we can't function alone in the world. And so to have an attachment with a bigger and stronger and wiser uh, figure, uh, actually, just biologically, um, uh, is a, a, a benefit to our survival. Makes sense. And biologically, there's a ton of research around this parent and parent-child attachment both in the animal kingdom and in the human world. And it's really lovely and very well established. Um, That there are basically two functions that this wiring has, or this relatedness has, for the developing organism. One function is that the uh, bigger, stronger, wiser figure, the parental figure, serves as a secure base, sort of like a home port, you know, sort of like the airport, that the developing organism uh, uses um, to kind of refuel and to kind of use it as a, as a place from which one goes out. 
So we see that with the little birds. I have a little bird's nest outside my window, and we see that that the you know that that the um, there's this port for the birds. They they you know they kind of grow strong enough in order to begin to be able to learn how to fly out of the nest, and then in some cases they you know to fly back. Humanly, that's the challenge to kind of learn how to fly out of the nest and then to fly back and then fly out of the nest, and then fly back, and then fly out of the nest, and then fly back. Um, and we do that as little kids, that we fly, you know, it's like we ride our bicycles, you know, to the next door neighbors or down the street, and then we come back. That's as far as we can go. Mom says that's as far as I can go. And then we gradually, you know, Mom says I can go around the block, and I fly a little farther. And mom says, you went around the block today. Good for you. Or I learned how to climb a tree. And the, the, the um, air traffic controller, if you will, is kind of back there saying, good for you. You did that really well. I'm really proud of you. So that, that, that you know, home port both is a, is a place from which one goes out from and a place of, uh, of encouragement and support and guidance. It's like, you know what, I think next time you do that, if you do it this way, it might work better. So one of the functions of this um, parental figure is to provide that kind of support, guidance, wisdom, and basically to send the little birds out into the world and to help them develop the capacity to function with strength and energy and clarity and wisdom out there in the world. And at some point, that particular relationship um, changes such that the little bird is able to kind of function out there. And for us as humans, we're able to function out there in the world more or less independently. Um, And we all know that in, you know, it's really kind of less, you know. We can function independently, but we actually really need that kind of support all the way through our lives in different ways. So then it changes from being a parental figure to a teacher, and then it changes from being a, a you know, a teacher in grammar school to, you know, my advisor in, in college or graduate school, and then you come to a meditation retreat like this, and there's somebody who's uh, had a little more experience with meditation, and we, we look to those people, you know, to just offer some guidance. And then, you know, the teacher says, you know, okay, go, go try that. And the teacher says, hooray. And at some point, the teacher says, you don't need me anymore. Let's move, you know, let me invite you to move to, to a new teacher. So that there's just this constant movement of, you know, guidance, applause, appreciation, and support. So that's one of the functions of a parent. The second function of attachment is to be a safe harbor. So when we get out there and, and there's a storm, you know, to kind of be a place where when our emotions, when our biology gets dysregulated, we can come back and get regulated again. And we all know those places, don't we? Where we get, you know, we feel, you know, sort of like a, when, you know, the electronics in your house go kaflui, when the electronics in our brains, when our bodies go kind of kaflui and we go... I can't cope, I can't cope, I can't deal with this, I can't deal with this. 
And, you know, so to be for the little child, and we see that happening, don't we? You know, we're at a picnic, and it's 8.30, and the two-year-old starts to kind of, you know, really lose it. And mommy or daddy goes over and picks them up, and they're screaming, and they're crying, and they don't, I'm not tired, I'm not tired. And and they say, honey, we're going home to bed. And and that, and that they're, you know, it's done with this kind of care, and it's like, let me enfold you, let me support you, let me take care of you, and help you come back into the nest so that you can once again regulate yourself. And part of the function, then, of that parental figure is to help that little growing organism to regulate itself and to kind of come back into coherence, what we call coherent functioning, where we can kind of go, oh, you know. And we we certainly recognize it, don't we, in ourselves and in one another when we're in coherent functioning and when we're not in coherent functioning. And it's true for all of us that we move in and out of that kind of coherence. And it's true for all of us that we need a safe harbor to return to when we're incoherent. You know, when we've just kind of lost our ability to cope, to, you know, to kind of regroup and re-regulate ourselves. Um, And as grown-ups, it's not just social attachments that enable us to do that, but nevertheless, social attachments are an important part of that. So some, you know, things like, you know, the the rocks that um, we go to or the, you know, the pond or nature or the tree stump or whatever it is that can help us regulate ourselves. But none of us really can do it um, without some kind of social help regulating ourselves as well. We're social animals. We're wired that way. So, so far, so good. You know, those are just, that's just how we're wired. It's like we're wired to see in a particular way and to hear in a particular way. And we're wired socially in a particular way. And... Uh, some of our, you know, social uh, longings, our longing for love, our longing for relationship, really comes out of that. Just comes out of that biology. That we're little social animals. Put somebody in solitary confinement for a long time, and they lose the ability uh, in their brains to be coherent. You know, is this? You know, people become psychotic if they don't have that kind of social interaction. That conditioning, however, doesn't always go well. So I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of things that can happen in the conditioning that can influence how I am, how I seek love and relatedness, how I relate to others, how I can, whether or not I can perceive where others are in their conditioning, and how we navigate that territory together. Because if we don't understand how that's working, um, we still can navigate it. It's not impossible, but um, it can be incredibly confusing. And we can kind of go back to the default of saying, um, I know what's true. You know, what's true is there's something wrong with me. Or, 
better yet, there's something wrong with you. You know that we, that we can really, and then we and then we kind of set about trying to fix that thing that's wrong. And um, unless we understand how to care for what's wrong and bring it back into coherence, we're never going to be able to fix it because it's sort of like you know hitting a angel food cake with a wrench. You, you know, it it it. It, it just doesn't work that way. You know? Needs a little more cooking. So it's helpful to understand it so we can see what it needs, what's needed here if we're struggling in, our, in the relational field. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what kinds of things go, go uh, haywire a little bit and, um, and see if it can be helpful. Uh, attachment research, parent-child attachment research, is about mm, 50 years old. And um, it's pretty solid, actually. And the research suggests that there are four different patterns that those uh, attachment patterns, that, that those uh, attachments can, can take. And it's, it's, it's universal across cultures. It's universal in the, the highlands of New Guinea. It's, you know, in the, you know, suburbs of New York State. It's, it's it, you know, that these attachment patterns are incredibly robust across cultures. They're part of our human DNA. And these are the things that can, that, that, uh, how it works. If both of the functions that I described, if, you know, uh, my friend Bob Marvin talks about, um, uh, the circle of security, and at the top of the circle is this little graphic, and at the top of the circle there, there's these hands. You know, at one end, uh, it's sort of a long sheet of paper, and at one end there are these hands which signify the parent. And at the top of the circle is what he calls the um, the uh, uh, the, the um, secure base part, where you know the the child goes out, uh, and Mommy or daddy is is really supportive, and and then the child goes out and goes, oh, this is kind of scary out here. We see it, you know, you know, we're out shopping, and the little two year old is kind of running ahead and kind of looking back to see where mom or dad is, and then they get out there and they go, you know, and mom or dad says, here I am, here I am. So they get out here and it's kind of too much, or you get up too high in the tree. You know, and mom or dad says, I'm right here. Now, here's how you get done. And then and then they get out here, and this is like too much. And then the bottom of the circle is when they come back to the hands. They come back, you know, and there's the the, the secure base. And they say, and, and mom or dad then uses that narrative, uses the language to help the child name the, the experience. So they tell stories. You know, you hear a little, you know, it's just lovely. You go to the playground, and you hear moms and dads um, you know, talking to their kids about what happened. And we do that, you know, as grown-ups, don't we? We say, you'll never believe what happened to me today. And what we want is we want someone to hear our experience and to acknowledge it. We don't want someone to tell us, well, what you should have done, or, you know. We want someone to hear our experience and acknowledge us and then to kind of help us come back into coherence so that we can then kind of use our skills. And it might be, I say, like, you know, do you have an idea about how I could climb that tree? Do you have an idea about how I could deal with my boss? But that it comes from 
the top of the circle, not from the bottom of the circle. Does that make sense? You know. So it's not from, you know, we're not trying to f- soothe someone's emotional state by telling them what to do. We have to wait until they're ready to go up at the top of the circle and go out again. Um, Bob has this wonderful image, and I've seen this on videotape, it's amazing, where there's this little two-year-old who's upset, and Mommy picks up the little two-year-old, and um, he's like, oh, and Mommy says, oh, you know, it's okay, it's okay. And it's like, that was scary, wasn't it? That was really hard. I, I left her a little while, and it really was me. And then at some point, you know, the child stops crying, and then what Bob calls is the full charge indicator wiggle, because at some point the child starts to go, And starts to push away, and it's basically saying to mom, "I'm done now. I can go play." You know. So when we're filled up and back into coherence, then we want to go back out again. So it's just you know, out in, out in, out in. Okay. However, we have normal people as parents who've had infinite causes and conditions in their lives who've had parents who've had infinite causes and conditions, who've had parents who've had infinite causes and conditions. Sometimes people can't do both of those jobs really well. And so we grow up with the experience of having only part of those functions fulfilled for us. And we're sort of left on our own to try to figure out what to do about the other one. For example, if I have a parent who's kind of anxious for all the same reasons that I'm going to be anxious, who's kind of anxious about exploring, maybe um, there was um, some kind of trauma, maybe there was, maybe it's just sort of biologically someone was kind of um, timid and didn't have a lot of support. But you know the kind of parent who says, oh, I don't, I, that's kind of scary, that tree. I don't think you should climb that tree. Or you, sometimes you'll hear parents saying, you know, the child is up in the tree and they say, now, be careful, don't fall. Don't fall, be careful. It's kind of scary, it's dangerous. And so there's this sort of transmission that being out there in the world is really way beyond your capacity. And so there's this anxiety and so there's this sense of the child develops Uh, kind of two things. One is, I don't have the capacity to be out there. And I better stay home because she's really nervous and I have to take care of her. And so there's this kind of push-pull and anxious attachment that forms. Like, I don't know if if I can navigate the world. So I'm kind of out there, and then I come back, and I'm kind of out there, and I come back. It's called an anxious, ambivalent attachment, you know, where I don't really know if I can navigate. Uh, you know, so that there's a sense of I'm not really competent, and I and and I just, furthermore, I'm never going to develop competence in the world. So that's one sort of difficulty that we that a that a parent can, if you will, transmit to a child. And then, but because some of this happens so early, then the child knows that not only this is my experience, but this is true. 
So part of it is because it's so early and part of it is because it's repeated so often that the neurons just fire. I start to move out in my neurons. Now it's my own neurons that are saying to me, oh, I don't think you can do this. You better, you know, you you better go back home. It's just not going to work. And so I'm out there and I, you know, it, it, the, the conditioning is so strong that it's really a challenge to navigate. So this one, one kind of attachment pattern, an anxious, what's called an anxious avoidant attachment pattern. Then we, get, then we talk about the bottom of the circle and the other kind of uh, uh, difficulty in attachment is if a parent, um, because of his conditioning and his conditioning and his conditioning and his parents and his grandparents and whatever happened to him in his life, maybe he had an experience at one time when he was very little that was emotionally overwhelming and there wasn't anybody who was able to help him name it and navigate it. Our, our son had a, a, a dog attack him when he was very little. And, um, and you know, to, to, to be able to name that and sit down with him and help him calm down and repeat it. And he'll actually bring up the story occasionally. And we repeat it again. Yes, that was really scary. I bet you were really scared about that. I'm so sorry that happened. So to have a parent who can help the child name it and also be, if you will, those arms that can, you know, the lap that the child can crawl into when it's just like, this is too much, I need to hide out, and I need not to see any dogs right now. But if a parent hasn't had that experience in their own lives, what they tend to do is develop a, a style of relating to their own emotional experience, even before they get to anybody else's, which is to say, it is not happening. I'm not angry. I'm not anxious. I'm not needy. I can do this. So they're very competent at the top of the circle, but when it comes to noticing and navigating their own emotional states, there's a kind of shutdown. And we, we know people like that, don't we? You know, that, um, that they're, they're kind of, uh, there's a kind of hardness to their relatedness. It, it, it's like comes to kind of, you know, I had one time, actually it was a very dear friend of mine who um, isn't really like this, but he and I were having quite a struggle, and he said to me one time, um, he said, well, that's your problem. You've always been too needy and too dependent. You know. And it was his way, really, of saying, this is overwhelming. I need to get you away from me. You know? That he just, it was just like, he, he, he just couldn't deal with um, my emotional state at the time, which actually was quite overwhelming. I was, I was feeling quite disorganized. But that we can have a parent who actually deals with our emotional states as though they are either non-existent or bad. So like my friend who said to me, in effect, a parent saying to a child, grow up, be a big boy, uh, don't be a baby, um, your mother has died, now you're the grown-up in the family. I'm only three, you know. So, so that that kind of a place where children learn 
that there's something wrong with emotional experience and there's something bad about me if I have it. And if I do have it, there's no support. So better yet, I don't have any. You know, I'm okay. So we can recognize those qualities in ourselves. We actually can recognize um, them in other people. And um, actually, let me name the the last kind of attachment pattern, and and then I'll go on to that. So about um, to have a secure attachment where we basically... You know, we can kind of pretty much navigate the top of the circle and the bottom of the circle. We need parents who do it well about 30% of the time. I loved that statistic. It was like I assumed it was sort of like 98 or something. It's like 30% of the time. Apparently, parents of children who have secure attachments do it skillfully 30% of the time. 30% of the time, they blow it. And the other 30% of the time, they're repairing their blows, <laughs> They're saying, I'm so sorry, honey, I was too busy to pay attention to your homework last night. Let's see what we can do this morning. You know? Or I was dismissive, you know, uh, you, know I, you, you talked about your boyfriend and I was busy making dinner and I didn't, uh, you know, I just wasn't tuned into you. Um, so can we talk now? You, you know, that, that's, our, that's a repair of, of, of blowing it. So, so for a secure attachment... Basically, that's that's all that's needed. It isn't like we have to somehow be perfect. We have to be able to name when we're not so perfect and fix it as best we can. Which sometimes is just saying, I'm so sorry, I really screwed that up. I'll do better next time. And then, in fact, to do better next time. Um, so 50%, 55% of the population across cultures, isn't that amazing? Across cultures, illiterate, literate, Across cultures, 55% of populations have secure attachments. 20% have the attachments that are, you know, the top of the circle, where they're sort of, where we're sort of anxious and uh, and kind of scared to go out and not feeling very confident. And 20% have attachments at the bottom, where we're unable to kind of notice our experience, our emotional experience, and navigate it well. So now we're up to 55 plus 20 plus 20, so we're up to 95. The other 5% are what's called disorganized attachments. Um, Those are attachments where the whole system goes into kind of jello. Um, And those are the attachments that um, really result from trauma, from early trauma, Um, where people really, it's sort of like approach, avoid, up, down, feeling, not feeling, overwhelmed, colossal feeling, no feeling at all, um, and I don't know what to do with it, I don't know how to be skillful with it, I don't know how to ask for help. Um, you know, I ask for help by hitting you in the face, you know, just all these kind of really confusing, disorganized kinds of signals. And so, you know, when people enter therapy, the process of therapy is really kind of helping people to be a secure base, or being a secure base, and helping people to use that new secure hands to find their way to a more integrated brain functioning so that the process of relating to the world is more integrated and more organized. All of us really probably have components of all of those 
patterns, at least I do, as I can identify them. I have um, my, actually, my attachment pattern um, is uh, in that 20% of anxious avoidant was. Because it's possible that you can, what Bob calls earned secure, you can learn to rewire your brain. It helps if you understand what the problem is in the first place, or if you have a therapist or someone to help you who can understand what the problem is in the first place. But you can rewire the system. So I have an earned secure attachment pattern uh, because I was able to work with the um, the insecure aspects that were caused by a variety of aspects of my uh, my history. Yeah. Dismissive. No, the the top the the pattern the name of the pattern you mean the 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 top of the the pattern at the top is anxious avoidant. It's the sort of you know when Dustin Hoffman in the movie uh, Rain Man he gets in the middle of the intersection and the light says walk don't walk. You know, walk don't walk, go for you know. And the bottom is dismissive, where I'm dismissive of emotional experience. My my own and others. Okay, And under certain circumstances, any one of those uh, patterns can flower because actually we have lots of different aspects of ourselves internally as well. You know, lots of different systems that can be activated given whatever the circumstances are. And so, um, you know, we, we can have little fragments of, of each of them. And what we tend to do is we seek out a partner or a boss or a work situation or a cultural group or whatever who in some way offers us the opportunity to heal those patterns, those social relatedness patterns. And unless we understand what's happening, that the tendency is for us to just keep repeating you know, just keep repeating the pattern. So if I have, say, um, a pattern of not being able to experience my emotions, then I might um, uh, be likely to uh, try to have a relationship with someone who um, is dismissive of emotions or is disorganized around emotions in some ways. So, you know, what we want is to kind of find someone who has that 30% capacity to kind of hang in there and be able to kind of help navigate and heal. And that's, again, that's where psychotherapy can come in because it can help us organize. Presumably, the psychotherapist is not necessarily someone who doesn't struggle with the same difficulties but is presumably someone who's taking responsibility for navigating our own issues in ways that don't end up overflowing onto you. When I I supervise a lot of therapists and tell them that being a therapist is like being in psychotherapy all day, every day, and our challenge really is to keep learning and growing and cultivating the capacity to be with whatever comes internally and externally. Um, So now we're...
do I want to go? Um, so, stories. Remember we started talking about stories. Um, so you've heard me as I've talked through this that the, the value of narrative, the value of story is huge. You know, if I have an auto accident, and you'll hear people who have some kind of traumatic experience, they have an auto accident or they had to go to the dentist and it was really difficult, that they'll come home and they'll say, let me tell you what happened. And sometimes someone will say, let me tell you what happened over and over and over and over again. And it's the brain trying to recalibrate itself, if you will, trying to rid itself of the, of the, of the trauma of the experience. And lucky for us now, we know some strategies not only in language but in energy medicine that can help to kind of clear some of that trauma out of the system. But when somebody who's had a trauma wants to keep repeating it, you know, like someone who maybe has some kind of sexual trauma or some sort of violence, and they want, they need to keep telling the story, that's the brain's effort to, to kind of... Um, bring into coherence what has happened. I had an auto accident one time and I was able to watch myself, you know, just just keep telling the story until I didn't need to anymore. And the, the idea is that I tell the story to someone who's present and listening, not trying to fix anything, trusting that my brain can find its way to coherence um, if there's just that kind of social connection and that process. So there's a real value in the story. However, one of the things that can happen is that we can become identified with that story. Then I become the person who can never be right because I had that auto accident or because I experienced that sexual violence or because my father did that thing when I was four. Now... I've become identified with that story. And that actually is going to keep me on the wheel of suffering. Because I'm just, every time I start to move out of the story, for example, if I'm now in a relationship with a, you know, a healthy person who is 30% of the time, for heaven's sakes, able to be... Um, you know, there and present and nourishing, every time I start to approach that nourishment, my story's going to kick in and I'm going to say, he's only doing this, you know, because he has to. You know, as soon as you get close to him, you know, he's going to disappear again. She really doesn't mean this. She's just being nice only because she's getting paid. That, the, that the, the pattern, the story, will just keep kicking in and keep us on the wheel of suffering. So when we're sitting on our cushions and in meditation practice, the invitation really is to be able to discern what's what. And when we're in that place of telling story, to drop into the experience that is trying to process itself and now we can be the secure base for the experience itself. We can be those hands that see it, acknowledge it, 
love it, care for it, take it into our laps, see what's needed, and go on from there. We don't need uh, always that person outside to offer that to us. We can cultivate the capacity to do that for ourselves and for other people. So then when our partner, when she's when she's disorganized, we have that capacity then to be able to be that secure base for someone for someone else as well. Um, because we're often not uh, disorganized at the same time. So I need to stop. This has gone on for a very long time. And um, I hope that's helpful in helping us to uh, look at narrative and story. And we'll move in a little bit to some uh, contemplations that will you know, help you to experience that a little bit um, more clearly in your own life. Um, I think we probably need some movement now. Should we just go outside? Is that, what do you think, 20 minutes? How much time would you like? Um, this, this has been a lot, you know, to, I kind of downloaded a whole lot here. Do you want a little longer to kind of sit with it or, you know, do you want 20 minutes? Do you want 30 minutes? What would you like? 30 minutes? Okay. So here's my suggestion. Go outside. Don't do a formal practice. Don't get tight with it. And at the same time, resist any effort to, like, ruminate, ruminate, ruminate. You know? Let let it kind of uh, float <laughs> out there someplace. And if there's something that's arising, let nature nourish and support you in whatever way is helpful for you. But um, be kind of spacious with it all. Okay? And if there are questions, don't worry about it. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Just let it go. Okay?